0: And we took off to fly to Guadalajara and on the way there the plane crashed. And my mother, my father, and my little sister were all killed. And I wasn't. And I woke up on this mountain in Mexico. My mother was laying over there, my father was laying over there, my little sister was over there. And I I was so, I I was, my skull was fractured, my back was broken in three places, my arm was crushed, my leg was all torn to pieces. I was paralyzed from the waist down and I was awake. The only thing I could move was my right arm. I watched, there was nothing I could do. I couldn't move. And I just watched them all bleed to death. And I pretty much quit the game right there. I had absolutely, I mean, it was just a real quiet decision in my head. I mean, I just, I quit. I have, there's no need for the facade anymore. I don't need to be doing all these things on the outside to, to make it okay for me to drink and use the way I want to drink. I don't have to pretend anymore.
1: Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak my name is john m i am an alcoholic and we are glad you are all here especially newcomers newcomers that is both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast sober speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of alcoholics anonymous Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Greetings from Studio AA deep in the heart of Texas here on episode number 292. That was the voice of Mr. Earl H that you heard at the beginning of this episode and you are going to hear so much more from Earl in just a moment, but first things first, this here episode is brought to you by Kate and David and Marie and Michelle, and what you may ask that Kate and David and Marie and Michelle do the to deserve such a mention, well, they went to our website, www.soberspeak.com, they clicked on the little yellow donate tab, and they made... Yes, a contribution. So thank you so much, Kate and David and Marie and Michelle for your contribution and helping us keep the virtual lights turned on. This here episode is coming right out to you. All right. So I got something here that I just saw before I came on to record and it was in the super secret Facebook group and it's from Mr. Rick. R. He's actually a friend of mine, Rick R., and he posted this in the Facebook group. By the way, if you are wondering how do I get access to that secret Facebook group, go to our, or not our, go to the Facebook application, uh, click uh, or search for super, excuse me, uh, Sober Speak secret group and ask for admission and we'll get you on in there. But anyway, Rick posted this and it said, this is from page 46 of the big book. And I love this quote. It says, we found that God does not make hard terms with those who seek him. So wherever you are out there, I want to read that again. It says, we found that God does not make hard terms with those who seek him. And then it goes on to us. The realm of the spirit is broad, roomy, all all inclusive, never exclusive or forbidding. It is open, we believe, to all men. Page 46 from the big book. Such a beautiful quote. Okay, so I was about to introduce uh, Earl H and just uh, and I'm going to introduce him in a second, but you know, something just came to mind for me right before I started to record this, and uh, I thought, you know, I may talk about this, I may not. I'm going to see where the spirit leads me. But I was recently talking to a friend of mine, and we were we were just talking about all kinds of things. To make a long story short um me and the lovely Mrs. M had been having several conversations lately about how we believe that our relationship should look, right? Um, And I'm sure if you've been married for any extent of time out there, you're going to recognize this. But anyway, some of those were difficult conversations. And the reason I bring up the gentleman that I was talking to is because I had always kind of looked at him and thought, you know, I think that's what I would like my relationship to look like with the lovely Mrs. M. And I asked him, how is so-and-so doing? I'm going to leave some names out here. And uh, he said, oh, well, we split up a couple of years back because of A couple of different reasons, okay? I'm not going to go into those. But it kind of took me aback. And I immediately went to the lovely Mrs. M and told her that story. Uh, And what I meant by that was I have this perception of how others live and how I think my life and our lives should look within this home and sometimes what I'm seeing is not actually happening out there I can't and you've heard this many times before judge my insides by somebody else's outsides and I went to the lovely Mrs. M and I went through this conversation and I said to her I'm sorry, sweetie, I want to tell you about, or I, I, I said, hey, let me, l- let me tell you about this conversation that I had with this other gentleman, you know, and they had split up, and I said, I'm sorry that I have a tendency to project what I see other people doing is what we should be doing. And what is important here is whatever is working out between us, we have to work it out. Between me and you and God. And all of that, it wouldn't have ton, but there was some tension that had been built up. And all of that dissipated on the spot. And I don't know why I wanted to say that. I just thought it was important. You know, I ask other people, I say other people, other guests that we have, what I have guests on this podcast, to be vulnerable. And I tell them that's what people will relate to. Can you just be vulnerable? Let them know what's really going on in your life. So... I don't know why, but that came to my mind, and I just wanted to talk about it here on the podcast before I introduced Earl H., and now we're going to go on to Earl H. By the way, feel free to reach out to me at any time at johnjohnsoberspeak.com, at and here is the one and only Mr. Earl H. If you've never heard Earl live before, you're going to really enjoy this. Uh, Earl... Oh, has lots of highs and lots of lows, and he has a gift and a talent for telling his story. You're going to enjoy that. So, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, I do present to you, Mr. Earl H, and we will have plenty of listener feedback at the end of this here episode. Enjoy, Earl.
0: Hi, everybody. My name's Earl. I'm an alcoholic. Earl.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh. Thank the uh, committee for asking me to uh, speak at an event like this. Always an honor and a privilege. Thank uh, Dennis for uh, all the communication. Bubba for picking me up at the airport, Um, getting me situated up here. Um, It's always strange. You start feeling you do enough of these after a while. You start feeling kind of like an astronaut. You know, you just get on a get on this flying machine and you blast out to some place you've never been, with people you've never seen, and you feel kind of isolated, out of sorts. And flying being one of my favorite things to do, you know, I, I'm sprung anyway by the time I get wherever I'm getting. And I, uh, I get in the car, and all of a sudden, it's Earl and Bubba in a, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, it's Earl and Bubba in a car in South Carolina. Where, I don't even know where South Carolina is. You know what I mean? I just
2: <clears throat> and I'm driving down
0: the road. I have no idea what's going on. You know, it's like I get out and it's like a, a buddy of mine moved out from uh, from Los Angeles that, and he said, "Yeah, come on, out, man, we're gonna play golf. It's gonna be great. Golf courses, resort. You know, I'm picking Palm Springs. I get, you know, I get off again. You know, I'm walking in the car going,
2: hey, 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 it's
0: very cold here. <laughs> you know, I have shorts in the bag. You know. So once again, I'm totally prepared for what's going on, and I walk into the lobby, and uh, there's Hank. I walk in the lobby, and this guy goes, Hi, Earl, look up, a Hank. I know Hank. I love Hank. Hank shares in meetings, and I know I'm in the right place. I've seen Hank different, you know, I've landed in different, other different states, and walked in, and some guy says, Hi, Earl, and I look over, and it's Hank. It's like, Hank really gets around, man. Hank is, <laughs> Hank is everywhere. Anyway, like, I, let's get this over with. I, uh, I drank. I, <laughs> I drank a lot. I, uh, I drank. I, I got drunk the first time I ever drank. Seemed to me uh, that was kind of the point, you know. I'm, I mean, I was restless, irritable, and discontented, you know, from the gate. I was born that way. And I, when it got to uh, um, when I was 12 years old, well. Let me go back a minute here. When I was five... Hey, look, Santa's here. Glad you made it, Santa.
2: <laughs>
0: Santa's in the back. I love that. It's, uh... This is November, though, right? <laughs> it's still November. I'm getting more confused by the minute, man. I need sleep. Oh. When I was five years old, I started sleepwalking and talking in my sleep. I'd walk through the house, stand at the foot of my parents' bed, talk for a while, scare the hell out of them, walk back to my bed, get back in bed. They'd follow me back there, ask me questions, I answered. I was a disturbed child. They ran a bunch of tests on me, and it turned out that uh, their answer they came up with was that they would give me this tablespoon of liquid every night before I go to sleep. They'd medicate me, knock me out, right? You know, knock me out. No more sleepwalking. No more problem, right? So, I mean, real early in life, I got the message, things aren't going the way you want them to go. Take something. Make it all right. Sort of filed that for future reference. By the time I was 12, um, uh, they they did some IQ tests. I mean, it turned out I had this very high IQ. I don't have it anymore, so I'm not bragging. (laughs) (laughs) That was gone by like 16. And so they shipped me off to boarding school, and I got shipped off to this boarding school And uh, um, As a matter of fact I met a guy In Memphis, Tennessee Speaking in a conference there About two weeks ago Who went to that school
2: Weird
0: Anyway, I ended up in this school I was 12 years old We drove to this place Nobody told me I was going to boarding school Drove Drove and drove and drove and drove We pulled up to this place Caravan of cars The whole family I got out of the car My father got out He put a suitcase down next to me He shook my hand He said, this will make a man out of you He got in the car And everybody drove off I was like standing, 12 years old, 5 feet tall, 104 pounds, clueless. And all of a sudden, I'm going to be a man now. Great. Family drove off. Fact is, I was given an opportunity for a wonderful education. Feeling was is that I just got thrown away and I had no idea why. My family, people who knew me best in the world just threw me away. It was not a comfortable feeling. And I, I can take that kind of pain for like, 72 hours tops, right? So, I mean, after about three days of that, I thought, fine, I did the the break. I made the break. I just said, fine, you don't want me. I don't want you. So, I disassociated myself and my family, and I never went back. Um, and I needed some tools for living. I had none. I was 12 years old. What tools do you need? What tools do you need to live? You know what I mean? They say, get up, eat, go to school. They ask you questions there. You answer them. You go home. They say, eat, study, go to bed. You do those things, and everything goes pretty well, you know? I didn't. You need any tools for living. I needed them in this place. So I'm walking around. I, I, my first tool for living I got from a guy named Tiny. Every high school's got a guy named Tiny. He's like six four, two forty. You know, plays guard on the football teams. Biggest guy in the school. I'm the littlest guy in the school. Turns out I'm the youngest and the littlest guy at 250 young men from all over the world. It was like Lord of the Flies in this place, right? They had <laughs> scoured the earth to find 250 of the most disturbed young boys they could find threw him down on this campus and there we were and I was the youngest and the smallest I was, I, I was up and coming I found Tiny found me I didn't find Tiny and he just said hey, he came up to me and said how you doing punk and slapped me in the back of the head sent my books flying and me flying and uh, I got up and I hit him as hard as I could now this is not this was the first time i would ever hit anybody in my life this is like an out of body experience that I'm having here you know what I mean where I'm watching myself slug this guy and in my head my, my, it's like going, don't do this this is stupid. And I hit him, and it did nothing to him. And he just, I just stood there looking up at this big guy, and he looked down at me and he said, you know, you got a lot of guts, kid. And then he beat the crap out of me right on the spot. And as I'm taking this beating, I'm thinking, this is going all right. It's <laughs> working out all right. I mean, I'd taken the beatings before. What was important to me was I was absolutely terrified of this guy. I was terrified of Tiny. But he had just said, you know, you got a lot of guts. My violence had masked the fact that I was afraid. First tool for living: violence works. If you're jumping on them, they're not sitting there thinking, gee, how frightened this guy is." You know, they're trying to defend themselves. They're busy. They don't have time to think that. So then, word spread across the campus in like 30 minutes. Watch out for this little high tower kid. He's a maniac. He attacked Tiny, right? So now I got this reputation as this little maniac, and this has absolutely nothing to do with who I am. Nothing to do with who I am. I'm a frightened kid, you know, who wants his mommy. <laughs> you know what I mean? And these guys are coming around going, you know, hey, he's a tough guy, he's a bad guy, we need to hang with this guy, right? So this guy came by and said, you want to smoke a joint? And I said, yeah. I had absolutely no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> I had no idea what that was. All I knew was he was saying, Do you want to come with us? And the answer was yes. It wouldn't have made any difference where they were going. I needed to hook up. I was alone in the universe far as I could tell I'm going with these guys so we picked up Steve on the way and Steve had a Tupperware container wrapped in tin foil and we went out behind the dorm and you could tell by the way Steve was opening this thing up that what was in here was very important (laughs) and he opened it up and it was this Tupperware container full of cheap red wine and Matt lit this joint and took a hit and hands I mean I just did what he did and then the wine came around I took a pull on the wine and this was going on I'm standing here looking at Matt and Steve I have no idea what we're doing no idea why we're doing this all I know is, is that it's, there's three of us now instead of just me, right? So I'm watching this go on. They're 13. They're like teenagers, right? That doesn't mean anything to anybody but a 12-year-old,
2: right?
0: <laughs> I Man, a great deal to me. I'm hanging with teenagers. You know what I mean? I got things are looking up. And then, I mean, all of a sudden, you know, I mean, all of a sudden, just the magic happened. That feeling kind of came up out of from my feet and it just wafted up over me. And for the first time in my long, lonely 12 years of living, I knew everything was going to be just fine. i never felt that before. I had never felt comfortable standing where I was standing, doing what I was doing with the people I was doing it with. Am I starting to sound like you? <laughs> Is it happening already? This guy nods, just goes, yeah, it's You're okay. starting to do it. My family's from like Oklahoma and Texas, you know what I mean? Anytime I move come this way, and I hear guys talk like the gentleman who led this meeting, guys who talk like that, it just starts happening to me. You know. By the time I leave, it'll be, you know, I'll be talking like, I, you know, I, bye, y'all, it's good to be here. <laughs> I get home and people say to me, what, what happened to you? What are you talking about? It happens to me, I don't know what it is. Maybe you just feel the better. Um, So anyway, it was the secret to life as far as I was concerned. It was the thing that made me feel like everything was all right. And what I have to remember at this point in my recovery is is that, or at any point in my recovery, is that I paid no price for that. No price at all. Woke up the next morning, felt fine. Thought, this is great. You can take this stuff and put it in your body and feel better than you've ever felt in your life, and there are no consequences. That was the information I had. Nobody said, you know, it wasn't like, as I'm thinking, this is great. It didn't think, and in about 16 years, you're going to wish you could die. Or in 16 years, you're going you're to be sick of going to the nut houses, sick of getting shot at. Don't want to get stabbed anymore. Want the violence in your life to stop. Want the madness between your ears to just let up for a second. That's what's going to happen everything that's of value and dear to you is going to just be erased. I don't know if, if you'd have told me that then, I don't know if it would have slowed me down a lick. I don't know. All I know is, is that there wasn't any of that information. It just looked great. There was no downside to this thing. I'm doing this as often as I possibly can. And that was a humble beginning for me, a little pot and a little wine, and I was off. Now, I talk about drugs in my story because I'm a child of the 60s. That's what we were focused on. We were focused on drugs. Our parents were the alcoholics. We weren't going to kill ourselves, drink ourselves to death like our parents did. We were going to kill ourselves in a whole new way. <laughs> That's what we were interested in. Identify as an alcoholic because in the end for me, nothing worked but alcohol. In the end for me, the last drunk I took was four and a half years long. And I ended up in Alcoholics Anonymous. So I identify as an alcoholic, but drugs led me to alcohol and the alcohol led me here. And those were my humble beginnings. The reason that I... I the reason that I, I identify as an alcoholic and I drank is that, you know, when we were in the 60s and we were focused on all these drugs and stuff, we thought we were pretty hip slick, and cool and we were real different than, than the drunks and, and, and we were better than and separate and we were cool and fashionable and hip and all that. But I'll tell you the truth. The truth is, is that drugs are extremely unreliable and booze is extremely reliable. And that is why whatever else was on that table back in those days, there'd be heroin one day, cocaine the next, pills the next, whatever. There was only one thing that was always on that table every single day, no matter what else was going on, and that was a fifth of booze. There was always booze on the table for us. And I, my, my explanation for that is because it's reliable. You never knew what you were getting with drugs. I mean, they're completely unreliable. There's no quality control going on out there. <laughs> Absolutely none. You go get yourself a fifth of Jack Daniels, you know what you got. You can count on that. You do a little bit too much cocaine, you can't get your mouth open anymore. (laughs) Don't worry about it. You just suck a little gin through your teeth get you shake it right off. You can go right back to the party. You don't have to worry. Not enough heroin to get you through the night? Don't worry. Jack Daniels will get you the rest of the way. Jack will get you the rest of the way. LSD a little too spooky this evening? Don't worry about it. Well, gin will get you back in the comfort zone. Don't worry. Just start slugging on that gin. Booze is reliable. Anyway, so those are the humble beginnings. Thirteen was pills, any kind of pills. Somebody, and the only reason I took pills because somebody said, "Would you like a pill?" And I said, "Well, yeah." I took a pill. Twenty minutes later, I was on the floor, and I was very happy down there. <laughs> and they said, and I would say, "Excuse me, what was that?" And they'd tell me, and I'd write that down. I need to ask for that by name. 14 was psychedelics. About 650 acid trips later, I was uh, classified legally insane by the military. That's another story. 15, I started shooting dope. Not because I was a tough guy or a bad guy or a crazy man. Simply because a woman walked up to me and said, would you like me to stick this in your body? And I said, yeah. (laughs) And she did, and I did
2: this.
0: (laughs) And on the way down, I just remember thinking, oh, yeah. (laughs) This will work. Sixteen, I started going to mental institutions. I dropped out of high school. My father came back in my life and said, you've obviously lost your mind through me in a mental institution. First time was for three months of observation and a year of rehabilitation. I remember thinking that was kind of excessive. <laughs> and they had—they uh, um, give you three cups of pills a day, and if you acted out a little too much, you got a shot. So every day was just about figuring out a new way to act out so we could get the shot, you know what I mean? <laughs> it, was, it had nothing to do with straightening things out. And uh, I didn't like it in there, and I decided one day to escape. My big deal in there was just wanted to escape. And they had those, uh, well, like that, those exit signs, like that red one right there, except they were green. And I thought that sums it right up. That's just that's what I just want to exit. I went out, and I see this. I'm shuffling around this place on weeks on end, and I would eat all my meals with this woman named Kilday. Kilday was really crazy. <laughs> Kilday was great. Kilday, you just say a couple of things to Kilday real fast, and she just starts spinning like a top. <laughs> So I had all my meals with Killday because every meal was like dinner and a show. You know what I mean? You're like, <laughs> eat your little stuff and watch Kill Day snap. So I used Kill Day as my diversion and, and when I decided to make my big break. And I was sitting in my chair. And I remember, I've been shuffling around this hospital for weeks on end. And uh, um, I don't know what's in those cups of pills. All right? So I'm thinking I'm going to make my big move right, out of the, out of the uh, cafeteria. So I get Kilday spinning and I get her spinning in that direction, Right. I go, ready, ready, go! <laughs> <You know?
2: laughs>
0: and I'm hauling ass, that's all I've got, that's <laughs> this fast, arms are working and everything, and I'm like looking down going, hey, I'm not going very fast, <laughs> and you hear from the nurses station, out over the loudspeaker, you hear, uh, Edmund, you got a minute you want to grab Earl? Always making a break for the door. <laughs> And Ed's in there eating a sandwich going, yeah, yeah, I'll get him in a minute. <laughs> Tools for living. You're going to get thrown in the mental institutions. you got to get out before they get the Thorazine in you. Because if, if you don't, you leave when they say. This stuff is serious, man. The Thorazine shuffle. That was my introduction to that. So I did that. So the next time I got thrown in the night house, I escaped the first day. It's a place called the Westwood. Spooky place, man. I got to escape the first in as I blast that out of that joint. I'm moving, those bells are going off and whistles, and there's this guy chasing me. And we're going across this backyard, and I'm heading for this 12-foot, ivy-covered, chain-link fence. I can see it like it was yesterday. I'm like 16 and a half, 17 years old. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a drug addict. I'm a high school dropout. I'm in any moment, hopefully, an escaped mental patient. <laughs> That's my resume. You know what I mean? <laughs> this is what I have to say for myself. This is all I got. And, and I'm thinking, if I make that fence, I don't have a problem. <laughs> I don't have any problem Because I'll be drunk in 20 minutes. And that's all that counts. That's all that counts. Because I drink no matter what. My neck of the woods, they tell newcomers, just don't drink no matter what. I personally hate that. I hate that. I guarantee you, if I could drink no matter what, no way I'm in South Carolina. No way. I don't know you people. Why the hell would I want to do that? I could be home channel surfing right now. Hanging out. Talking to my friends. You know, calling up my sponsor. Listening to, listening to my guys I sponsor complain. Call me and complain. I could be doing that. I could, I'd, I'd be at home just not drinking no matter what. You know, we can go to meetings. What for? Why would I go to AA meetings? Why? Read the book, please. <laughs> do step four. Now, you're high if you think I'm going to do step four. Why would I do that? Take a phone call from an alcoholic at 3 o'clock in the morning? Be inconvenienced in any way, shape, or form by another alcoholic? What the hell for? I'd just be home not drinking no matter what. Because I could do that. I could just drink no matter what. No, I'm not drinking. Why, how are you doing that? Just not drinking no matter what. But see, that just completely misses the point. On the flip side of that, it's like saying just say no to me. You've missed the point when you say that. I drink no matter what. Given a good reason, I do not stop. That's the difference between me and the problem drinker. You give a problem drinker a good reason to stop, actually can do it. I know that's hard for you to believe. It was for me too. But they can. You get an, you get, problem drinker gets a drunk driving charge goes before the judge. The judge says, you know what? I'm sick of seeing you. I see again. You're doing a year. We're not going to talk about it. No discussion. A year. Flat. When you, the whole year. No time off for good behavior. The end of the 365 days in jail, you come back to me and we'll talk again. Problem Grieger says, well, I don't want to go to jail. Actually stops drinking and driving. Me, I start wondering what it's going to be like in jail. Because <laughs> I'm going to jail. I know I'm going to jail. I just say, thank you very much, honor, for the information. You know what I mean? I like, I can prepare myself now for the, for the fact that I'm going to jail. And on and on and on and on. I mean, those are the, you give a guy like that a good reason to stop, he can do it. I can't do that. I was never able to do that. I got so many reasons, and I'm not talking about those subliminal, off the side of the road, small little seed out of the corner of your eye kind of, you know, indications that maybe drinking's not really going real well for you, Earl? I don't mean those. I mean like the big neon lit up billboard right up over the overpass as you're driving down the freeway. Big, huge billboard that says you can't drink like the normal individual. Thank you. I don't even touch the brake, man. Just <laughs> right by any good reason. Can't do it. Can't do it. I've... It, didn't, it didn't matter to me. It's, uh, the denial was in full effect. I mean, I knew I was an alcoholic, referred to myself as an alcoholic and a drug addict years before I stopped. I was comfortable with that. I wasn't the slightest bit ashamed of it. It's who I am. You live your life, I'll live mine. Anyway, 16 was the nut nuthouse that started. I spent three years out on the street after I escaped. It was interesting, that hospital that I uh, escaped from, I've since done business with that hospital and I'm, having, I'm in a business meeting with the, the administrator of the hospital he kept saying, you know, your name is familiar. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: he kept saying, well, ah, it's a familiar name. You know? And I didn't want to say anything and at the end of the meeting we were standing outside and he was a really nice guy he was the same administrator. He'd been there for 15 years. 16 years at that point. Um, and I just had to tell him, I said, you know, um, I got to tell you, I escaped from here 16 years ago. <laughs> That's why my name is familiar to you. And he just sort of stood there, kind of looked at me, kind of curious, and he just said, Well, I'm glad to see you're doing so well. <laughs> I said, Yeah, things are good, man, thanks. And we did business after that. He was willing to do business. So I don't know, maybe he felt like he owed me something. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, um, by the time I was 20, I'd ended up in college. Weird. I had, I mean, I went on a business, I went on an interview. I decided. I met this woman, we talked for 20 minutes at the party, it went well, we were in love. We moved right in, we were living together. And I thought, uh, you know, I don't really do anything except, you know, drink. You know, I'm in like a relationship, apparently, you know. And uh, Rosemary was a nice woman. Rosemary just used to look at me with her mouth hanging open, things that I would do. And uh, I said, well, I'll go to college. And there was an interview to him. It was a guy in town who was doing interviews for a prestigious business college in Northern California. So I went and got an interview, and I went and I talked to this guy, and he was, a, he was a musician, so I was a musician. His favorite color was blue. I said, that's incredible. My favorite color is blue. I mean, I just lined right up with this guy. You know how we do. End of an hour, this guy said, you're going to be a wonderful addition to our campus in the fall. I said, I'll see you there. <laughs> and I walked out of there one more time, thinking, how am, I, how am I going to do this? You know what I mean? I don't even have a high school diploma. These guys want, like, transcripts and stuff, you know? So I went to my father. I said, I know, I know. Money talks, right? So I went to my father, and I said, uh, listen, I got accepted to college. Don't ask. Business college. Yeah, I'd appreciate that. I'm going to college. Let me check for the tuition for the year, and I'm leaving town. To which my father replied, beautiful. You <laughs> And me and, and me and the lovely Rosemary Piled all our belongings And eight pounds of hash In the back of this truck And drove to Northern California To higher learning And I walked in And handed them a check For a year's tuition And said the transcripts Are in the mail And they said fine Took the check and Went down to the local high school Signed up for the GED program So I was going to college During the day was Going to high school at night in <laughs> my GED program <laughs> Rosemary got a straight job And I became a drug dealer I didn't know how to do anything else. I had no morals or ethics to get in the way of doing this. You know what I mean? I had I had no sense of family. I hadn't been a part of a family since I was twelve years old. I had no sense of community. I had no sense of belonging to any kind of a group or organization or fellowship or you know. I I didn't think in terms of anybody else. I was a totally self-centered alcoholic, fear-centered human being. I didn't. I, it was not within my ability to think about you or consider you or be involved with you in any way. It was just all about me. Trying to find my way through the world, struggling the way I knew how to struggle. So I got the high school diploma, and I got, and I'm in the college, and I'm studying marketing and production and distribution, and I'm applying this to my business, and business is booming. And I'm, <laughs> I think college is great. And Rosemary saying things like saying saying things like I'm too high. Ridiculous thing to say. No, thank you. I've had enough. Saying things like this to make it make me realize I'm with the wrong woman. <laughs> so we sent her back to L.A., and I got to use the way I do. And when I was 20 years old, they diagnosed me to have malignant cancer. So I flew back to L.A., and they told me I was going to die. And they told my family I was going to die. And they did this major surgery thing on my back. And uh, um, put me in the uh, in the chemotherapy called nuclear medicine is what they called it then. And uh, they kept injecting me with this... this Glow in the dark stuff, and I just didn't like it. I didn't like the way they their drugs. So I just said, Screw it, I'm not doing this anymore. And I went home and I got high the way I do, which was maniacal at that point. And um, I beat the cancer thing. I beat it. And I'm firmly convinced that the way I was using it I was so toxic in those days that basically cancer could not live in my body. <laughs> <laughs> I outgunned cancer. <laughs> Went back up north, went back to school. My mother called me and said, listen, we haven't been anywhere, anywhere as a family in 10 years. I said, yeah, what's your point? And she said, uh, well, we need to do that. And she was crying. She said, "We'll go anywhere you want to go for your birthday. Let's just go to the family. I said, all right. So I flew back to L.A. And we took off to fly to Guadalajara, and on the way there, the plane crashed. And my mother, my father, and my little sister were all killed, and I wasn't. And I woke up on this mountain in Mexico, and... Um, my mu- um, my my mother was laying over there. My father was laying right over there. My little sister was over there. And I, I was so, I, I was, my skull was fractured. My back was broken in three places. My arm was crushed. My leg was all torn to pieces. Um, I was paralyzed from the waist down. And I was awake. The only thing I could move was my right arm. And uh, I watched, there was nothing I could do. I couldn't move. And I just watched them all bleed to death. And I pretty much quit the game right there. I had absolutely, I mean, it was just a real quiet decision in my head. I mean, I just, I quit. I have There's no need for the facade anymore. I don't need to be doing all these things on the outside to to make it okay for me to drink and use the way I want to drink. I don't have to pretend anymore. Um, I have no interest in a god that would that would take my little sister, who was just a wonderful, kind, gentle, artistic, creative human being, you know, and and my mother, who was great. My mother was great, Um, loved me unconditionally, and I I was—I mean—and loving me was tough. She just loved, I was her boy, you know, I was her son, and she loved me, and I loved her, I mean, and I, those I, those women I loved, me and my father, you know what I mean, it was, you know, toe to toe, it was the way we were, we were way too much alike, and uh, I thought any God that would take them and leave a lion, cheating, thieving, dope, fiend, alcoholic like me on the planet, I have no interest in a God like that, I renounced God, a little while later, some guys came up and scavenged the plane wreck, and took the wallet out of my pocket, took the money out of my pocket, scavenged stuff around and. Left me up and then they split and left me up on the mountain to die. I had no more use for you anymore either. So I was out of the game. There wasn't anybody else for me to play with. I had no interest in you. I had no interest in God. I was out of it. I just thought I'm going to get off this mountain alive and I'm going to use till I die. And I made it off that mountain. They took me down to a, a Red Cross station, Mexican Red Cross station. And the guys, they stopped the truck and they tagged my right toe. They tagged me as dead and sat down and started smoking cigarettes. I was laying in this truck next to my dead mother watching the fleas jump. And uh, yelling at these guys till I finally got back in the truck and took me to a hospital and they kept me in this hospital for uh, three and a half days under guard by Federales interrogating me through an interpreter and wouldn't give me anything for pain wouldn't do any kind of medical treatment at all I just lay there all busted up passing in and out and nothing for the pain Um, the reason they were interrogating me had to do with another little matter in Mexico that we don't need to get into right now (laughs) needless to say they were surprised to see me back in their country and uh we, we talked it over for a few days, and then they plastered me from the neck down and shipped me back to the States like a package. You can have them. And I spent a long time in a hospital up here, up in the States in, in Southern California, and they said that I'd probably have a withered left hand because of the nerve damage in my arm. Um, I may or may not walk again. That was up for grabs. I had massive infections and, and broken bones and thought I'd be blind in my left eye. And uh, Quite a while later, I walked out of there under my own power. I was an angry guy. I was very angry, and uh, I, went, I, I went on my last run, and it lasted for four and a half years. Had no interest in drugs, because I kept ODing all the time, trying to get those pictures out of my head. I kept ODing, um, and I mean, I got to, I got to, the, I od so many times, that there was guys in UCL, I mean, I, they put me in the ambulance one more time, and the attendant looked down and go, hi, Earl. I mean, I was getting known in the wrong circles, you know what I mean? They'd take me to the emergency rooms and pump my stomach, and I could talk to the guy while he pumped my stomach. He'd run the tube up the nose and went down the throat and pump away, and i just, Talk to the guy and tell him, you know, I'm having a bad day. <laughs> and uh, one day I came out of the nightmares one more time and I ran down the basement. I grabbed a fifth of Jane Bean. I drank it down. Went into the blackout. And came, when I came to, like two days later, um, I hadn't had any of the pictures in my head. No bad dreams. No nightmares. None of that stuff. Booze did the trick. And so I, drugs, I gave up drugs like that. Easy. Alcohol was my, what I was after. I used cocaine to keep me on my feet so that I could drink the way I wanted to drink. It was all about drinking for me, and I drank for another four and a half years. I drew sober breath on three different occasions for 72 hours each during that four and a half years, and that was because I was strapped to a table. I'd go in those little detoxes. I'd get the sick. I couldn't drink anymore. They'd strap me to a table, shoot me for land. I'd convulse them 72 hours later. They'd either send you to the morgue or send you home. Um, these little sanitariums in Hollywood, they were interesting. 150 bucks cash. Um, <laughs> not your licensed medical facility, you know what I mean? <laughs> and and uh, um, I'd swear to God, God, it's me again. If you get me out of this sane and alive, I will never, ever, 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 ever drink again as long as I live. I can't take this anymore. I can't take it. And uh, I'd get up off that table after 72 hours, and I'd go, get, go back to the nurse's station and give me back my Valium and my car keys and my wallet, my gun if I had one, whatever I had with me. They'd just give it all back to me and say, no, don't drink anymore. I'd say, No ma'am, I can't do this anymore. And on the way to the car I'd take thirty, forty milligrams of Valium just to get the shake off me so I could drive the car, and then I'd come out of the blackout four out, four days later in another town. Because on the way home I'd stop at a bar. See the thing for me was it wasn't about stopping for me. I stopped thousands of times. I'd stop three, four, five times in a day. <laughs> Through. Tricks for me is I didn't know how to not start again. I was always starting I'd always start again. Always. Within the 24-hour period, I would start again. I didn't know how not to do that. Didn't know anything about it. Didn't know what alcoholism was. Knew I was an alcoholic. Didn't understand the disease. Didn't know anything about it. Just dying of it. By the time I came out of my last blackout, I was 28 years old. I was 215 pounds. I was yellow. I was dying of alcoholism. And I don't say that loosely. I had been to a couple of doctors to find out why I was feeling so bad. And they said, you're an alcoholic and you're dying. You're going to die. You're going to die this year, Earl, if you don't stop drinking. And I just remember thinking, okay, then that's what I'm going to do. Because I don't know how to do I don't know how to be here any other way. Never know how to be. I've been like this since I was 12 years old. Don't know anything else about it. Came out of my last blackout, dying of alcoholism. Yellow, psychotic. Couldn't distinguish between the true and the false. Didn't know. I'd come to and think, did I think that? Did I dream that? Did somebody tell me that? Did I do that? I didn't know. I mean, it was just this, all this big blur. I had. Almost 700 stitches in me, I'd broken 75 bones. My family was dead. I had no friends. I had no place to live. Um, It was over. It was over. I burned my life to the ground. And I threw up two broken hands this day. I don't know how I broke them, but they were broken. And I just said, help. And they took me by ambulance one more time to one place and they said, get them out of here. And they took me to another place and kept me five days. Said it was getting worse, get him out of here. And they took me by ambulance to another place. And they kept me for 12 more days of detox and a 30-day free bed rehab program. And I left there and I knew one thing. If I drink, I die. That was it. If I didn't want to die, I better go to Alcoholics Anonymous. So I went to Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't come here because I wanted what you had. I didn't know what you had. I just knew that I couldn't live with what I had anymore. And I went and I sat in the back with my arms folded, my best tough guy look on my face. So you all stay away from me. And, and the old-timers did, because I was, you know, hair out like this, beard out like this, and psychotic look in my eye, you know, <laughs> still a little yellow. You know, and I sat in the back like, yeah? <laughs> what? <laughs> terrified, absolutely terrified, because none of my tools for living worked anymore. And all the old-timers went, brother, there's a cup of coffee for you right over there, and there's a seat right over there, glad you're here, welcome they did that from about 20 to 30 feet away. <laughs> you know? Because they knew who I was. They knew that I was a very, very frightened individual. And you just don't run up on people like that. <laughs> you know? Things can happen that nobody wants to have happen. I'm not a tough guy or a bad guy. I never have been and I never will be. But there were times in my life, the violence in my life was extreme. I got, I've been shot at, stabbed twice. crazy. It got crazy, only because I was very frightened, very frightened, and I forced people to shoot at me and stuff, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame any of those guys. I don't blame any of them. Well, i blame the one guy who stabbed me in the leg, i blame that guy. Right, he stabbed me right after I said, excuse me. You know what I mean? <laughs> what kind of social behavior is that?
2: <laughs>
0: anyway. So I'm sitting in the back, but meetings have new guys who don't see it the same way. You know what I mean? They just, they got six, eight, nine months of sobriety. They just caught fire with Alcoholics Anonymous. And they're giving it away tonight.
2: <laughs>
0: and what they see is a new guy. And, and I got, mine, mine was at the meeting. His name was Vegas. And he saw me and he went, ah, and he came at me, man, with his hand out. And he was smiling and he was... Oh, I just remember sitting there thinking, oh, no, look at this guy's coming at me. He's smiling. I hate that. (laughs) He's all shiny and combed and, oh, man. He came up and he said, hi, I'm Vegas, I'm an alcoholic. And I said, so what? (laughs) Me too, man, it ain't exactly the highlight of my life. I don't know what you're so happy about. Get away from me. Go away. And he, and, he did, and he looked at me and he looked deep into my eyes. And were like, it was like everything kind of got real still. And there was a couple of guys who, everybody froze. I'm looking like Vegas going to lay it on him now. And he looked right at me and he leaned over and he said, Keep coming back. <laughs> I looked at him and went, Great, thank you. Thank you. I'll keep coming back. I feel much better now. You guys feeling good too? I'm sure with 3 o'clock when I'm losing my mind, that's going to help. I'll feel better with that keep coming back thing. Because it's clear that, of course, but the look on your face and those buffoons standing behind you, that you all seem to see that there's some deep spiritual significance to this keep coming back thing. I'm the only guy here, clearly, that doesn't know what that is. So once again, I'm the loser. You win. I'm feeling very much a part of now. Thank you very much for the keep coming back thing. I'll, I'll use it often. I hate this AA thing already. I hate this AA thing. If you're new, and somebody walks up to you and says, hey, keep coming back, or one day at a time, or my personal favorite, hey, turn it over. (laughs) All right? If they start laying those little AA ditties on you, step up to the plate, man. Just step up and say, excuse me. I don't understand the deep spiritual significance of keep coming back. Would you mind expanding on that for me a little bit? I don't know about around here, but where I'm from, if they're honest, about 80% of them would say, you know what, I'd love to, but I don't have any idea what it means either. You know what I mean? I came in, they said it to me. You come in, I said it to you. I have no, you know. There's a guy over there that reads the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Maybe he knows what the hell that means. Let's go ask him. I mean... Just ask him, you know what I mean? Because we'll swing it in here, you know what I mean? <laughs> We're good at it. If it's, you know, you come off the street, you come in, and you think, what's the first thing you've got to understand? Not in the heart and soul of the thing. Not the guts of it. You've got to get the rap down. got to get the lingo. Give me the verbiage, man. Tell me what the words are around here. I'll, I'll start walking in these rooms going, yeah, how you doing, brother? Keep coming back, man. How, yeah, sober all day long. One day at a time, bro. Good. Cool. Go. <laughs> Talk to your sponsor. Hey, yeah, yeah, hey. 10, 11, and 12, brother. 10, 11, and 12. I have no idea what I'm talking about. None.
2: It's
0: ridiculous, man. Absolutely ridiculous. I watch guys doing it. I tell the guys I sponsor, I watch them do it, man. And they, t- they swing it by me. They roll it by me to see how it's going to fly. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love sitting there and just pulling the car over. One guy I had, I've got to tell you this, one guy I had... Um, in and out, in and out. Recovery. This, I mean, finally, I mean, really, 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 got beaten to death out there, right? And he's back in one more time, and he's and he's really earnest, and I mean, he's meetings, and he's he's, you know, said, go pick that guy up, you go pick the guy up. I mean, he just never, ever even blinked at any request that was made of him that involved being in a meeting every day, is in a meeting twice a day, just doing. It. I mean, he just really, really, really. I was, I started to have hope for this guy, you know. It's a dangerous thing, man. I started having hope for a newcomer. I was having a hope for this. Oh, I good. We got in the car one day, and it, there it was. You know, Earl? And he started. You know what I mean? He just started with the words. One day at a time, brother. You know, we just got to do this one day at a time. And, and I've, I've turned my will of my life over to the care of God. And, you know, step four, you know, I did the... And he just blah, blah, blah. You know, and, and he just, you just see his mouth going like this, right? And we were on the freeway, and we were going to another meet. We were going to a meeting, right? And I just, all of a sudden, I thought, I'm not, so I just headed for downtown Los Angeles. It was like, just veered this way instead of that way. All of a sudden, we're downtown. Got off. next thing you know, we're in Skid Row. And he goes, all of a sudden, he's just talking, he he didn't even notice, right? I'm sitting at a street light, and there's like 60 guys on a street corner right here, right? Smoking crack on Skid Row. And Skid Row in L.A. is a sight to behold, all right? Is, this is unbelievable. Fires burning in the streets. I mean, it's like this. It's like a city within a city, and it's all out on the street. And there's just just tombstones in everybody's eyes. It's unbelievable. And there's like sixty brothers over here on this corner smoking crack. And this little white kid it's about five foot two. Says, "What are we doing here?" And I said, "Get out." And his eyes got real big, and he said, "What?" I said, yeah, man. I said, if you're going to do that, let's just save everybody a lot of time and a lot of trouble and just go over there on the corner with those guys and do what you got to do. Because you know it's where you're going to end up. The minute you start talking this shit, we all, inevitably we end up back here. So just get out of my car. And the light turned green. And I didn't go. <laughs> he just said, and they go, Aren't you going to go? <laughs> I said, no, I'm waiting for you to get out of the car. Because I figured, you have to fork in the road, partner. you got two choices here. A life based on spiritual principles, and that'll be hanging with me and doing the work as it's found in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Or, you can try and blot it out, like the book said, and, just, and go where that takes you. Go on, get out of my car. I'm sick of you. He said, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm sorry. Finally, we took off and we ended up in the meeting. He's sober still. He's over still. <laughs> that was probably the most fun I ever had at the expense of a new guy. <laughs> that was really a lot of fun. The look on his face. i never seen anybody's eyes get that big. So anyway, where the hell were we? I ended up in meetings. First meeting, I got lucky. I got shot. Guy got up and he shared. He was, a, he was 65 years old. He was a skid row bum. He was an alcoholic. He was an ex-wino. He was a boxer. And I thought, I'm none of those things. (laughs) Boxer. What the hell? Boxer. Get a gun. (laughs) Get a gun. Box. It's ridiculous. You're 11 and 0. Eh, You keep talking to me like that, you're 11 and 1. I I got a gun right here. (laughs) Wino. I never drank wine unless there was nothing else to drink. Skid Row bum. I wasn't a Skid Row bum. I couldn't find Skid Row I'd have gone there There's something very comforting to a guy like me About the idea You go get yourself a fifth of gin And you go sit in a doorway And you crack it open And you start drinking your gin And you're on Skid Row Nobody comes up to you and says Hey, what are you doing? What the hell are you doing? It's 9 o'clock in the morning What are you doing? Down there it's just Oh, look at that lucky guy He's got a whole fifth of gin by himself over there They're trying to make friends with you They're not bothering you but the beautiful thing was, and I noticed the differences between me and you. I don't look for the similarities. If I notice similarities between us, i got to pay attention to you. I don't want to do that. I want to notice the differences between you and me so I can get the hell out of here, so I don't have to listen to you, so I don't have to take anything you've got to say into consideration. Spot them like that. If, if you're a woman, you don't know about me. Two different worlds. Men and women, two different worlds. You don't know anything about me. Black, you don't know anything about me. Hispanic, don't know anything about me. Gay, you don't know anything about me. Five years older than me, five years younger than me, you come up through another deal. You don't know about me. I just spot it like that, man, so that I don't have to listen to you. Luckily, stop your machine and turn your tape over at this time. Rob me of all of that. If you're in this room, you know everything you need to know about me. Common problem, common solution. That's, that's the 80% of my life right there. I mean, everything else is kind of falls under those headings. All of my life at this point. I got it so so good that I could circle the wagon so tight around me that by the time I got to AA, if you weren't Earl, you didn't know about me. I could find a difference between you and me like that. And I sat in the back and I knew this guy didn't know anything about me. The beautiful thing was was that I I had destroyed my life. I had nowhere else to go. I had nowhere else to go. Where was I going to go? I had to sit there and listen to this guy. And he changed it for me. That guy talked openly and honestly about his feelings as a man and he talked about how he'd wake up in the morning with his head just chewing on him. And he would get up, suit up, go to work, work an honest day's work, go get something to eat, go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, not to take, but to give, to be a service to the new guys coming into the room. And then he would go out to coffee with these guys and then he would go home and he would get in bed. Head chewing on the whole way. No wreckage. Using the tools that Alcoholics Anonymous had given him. That amazed me. I thought that was amazing. And then it was like he looked right at me and he said, you know what, I don't care whether you like what i got to say or not. You don't like it, go to another meeting. I loved that. (laughs) I did, I loved that. Because it made it clear to me, this guy's not selling me this deal, he's sharing it with me. If I want it, I can have it. If I don't want it, fine, go to another meeting, maybe somebody else will say something I can use. I left there thinking, this is cool, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. I left there with something I had not had for years that I think is the most important thing, any alcoholic can give another alcoholic. That guy gave me hope. I came in a low-bottom, hopeless, dope-fiend alcoholic with nowhere else to go. I went in my first meeting. A gentleman shared, and I, I left there with some hope. That maybe, maybe I didn't have to start again. Maybe. And I came back, and I came back, and I came back, and I've been coming back ever since uh, my sobriety date's November 6, 1980. So 15 years now, I've been, I've been coming every day, and day. I've never had to go back out. I've never had to take another drink, use anything that was mind-altering at all. And, it's a, and, and the path has been remarkable for a guy like me. I, was not, I came in here torn to pieces. I never took a chip. I didn't take a cake until I was three years sober. I didn't take a chip until I... I didn't, I didn't open my mouth. I never shared until I was two and a half years sober. I was destroyed. And it was a slow go for me. And I, got a, I, did the, I just did the things that I heard that you needed to do. Guys would get at the podium and they would say, you need to go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. Everybody that we ever talk to that goes out and comes back and we ask them, what happened? They say, well, the first thing was I stopped going to meetings. So go to meetings. It's a pretty good indication that, that it's a good idea to go to meetings. So go to them. It's where you meet your fellows. I can't get sobered, but we can. Hang with your fellows. Go to meetings. All right. You should probably read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because that's the program. This is the fellowship. That's the program. Know the difference. Both vital to your recovery. Okay. Once you have a spiritual awakening as a result of doing the stuff that's outlined in that book, you best give it away and be a service because you can't keep it unless you give it away. That made no sense to me, but I said, okay. <laughs> no, none of it made any sense to me when they said it to me. I mean, they, could, they said, here. I went in, I got a sponsor. I got a vicious sponsor. The late, great Donald Madden. Amazing human being. One of the finest examples of Alcoholics Anonymous that ever lived. Died no, July 25, 1994, with 23 years of sobriety. Being a service on a daily basis. Died meditating. Died doing his morning meditation, which was a right and proper way for that guy to go. Get up, suit up for another day, sit down to do his morning meditation, and leave. Beautiful human being. Broke my heart when he died. I was with him for almost fourteen years. That's longer than I've ever been with anybody, including my family. He was my family to me. He was he was the one he's how come I know there's a God. Because God came to me through Donald Madden. When Donald Madden came to me and said, Yeah, I'll be your sponsor. You don't have to like what I tell you. You don't have to think it's a good idea. You just have to do it. I said, All right, I can probably work around that. (laughs) I couldn't. We went to a meeting and he said, they make 550 cups of coffee here every Friday night and you're going to make them for the next year. I said, bullshit. <laughs> you don't seem to understand, I'm losing my mind here, pal. I sleep like an hour a night. It's real spooky what goes through my head those other 23 hours. My whole plan every day is to get tired enough to get that hour's sleep. That's all I'm about. It get, the violence could break out at any moment, man, I'm telling you. I'm telling you, you've seen the scars. It's coming I'm telling you We're, in, we're all in serious trouble we're in, It's dangerous It's bad This is very bad I'm awake It's bad And your response to this is Make a little coffee I don't think you understand What I'm going through And he said fine Then drink I said you see There's no talking to you people <laughs> Try to have a conversation with you And you just cut right To this drinking thing again there's no point in talking to you. He could have said to me, fine Earl, fine. What we're going to do here is we're going to ask you to make the coffee. But it's not about making coffee. It's not that you're the new guy, so we're going to give you the grunt job. We're going to give you the greatest gift we've got to give you within the fellowship. We're going to give you an opportunity to manifest in your life one of the greatest spiritual principles afoot on earth. Anywhere. Forget just Alcoholics Anonymous. Anywhere. We are going to give you the opportunity to be of service. To get out of self. We've watched you. We've heard who you are, Earl. You're one of the most self-centered human beings we've ever met in our life. <laughs> you probably never thought about anybody but you your entire life. real well true. So, so we're going to give you this opportunity to get out of self for four and a half hours about what it'll take from start to finish every Friday night. Out of self, out of self. Be of service, out of self. Be of service, out of self. That's what it's going to be. And by the time you get back to you at the end of that four and a half hours, it's going to be a little bit different. And you're going to come back to you and the living of your life with a little different perspective. It's going to be a good thing all the way around. He could have said that to me and I would have just said, huh? <laughs> so he said it in, a, in language that a newcomer like me could understand. He said, do it or drink. Okay. I'll do it then because I don't want to do the drinking thing. I don't get it at all. Six months into that commitment I was feeling better. That was Donald Madden. I went to his door at 7 o'clock every morning and said, I'm up. <laughs> what do we do now? And he had this big factory. Down on Pico and Orange. And he said, you and some of the other guys get some scaffolding and some paint and some equipment and paint the outside of this factory. He said, great. So we painted this factory every day. You know, and he'd give me some money and I'd get something to eat. And, and, I, and I'd go to a meeting and I'd get some sleep and I'd come back in the morning and I'd paint on the factory. I mean, these other guys, just like ants around this thing. We got the outside done. I was terrified. He said, paint the inside of the factory. Oh, good. So we went in and we painted the inside of the factory. When we were done, he said, you know how to paint. Go get a job.
2: <laughs> but do you
0: see what he did? Do you see what he did? Do you see how he went so far beyond anything that could ever be expected of a sponsor? He gave me a way to go out in the world now and earn a, a decent wage. All my marketing and you know all that stuff, I mean, I was in no shape to go into the business world. He gave me a, I went out and I got a job working for a house painter. A guy named Cecil. I'd meet Cecil at six o'clock in the morning. I mean, you know, ready. <laughs> and we'd paint. And I would just paint and I would just it's like a blank screen in front of me all day for all this insanity to pour out on And I'd paint till I hit a corner. And I'd just turn.
2: <laughs>
0: and I'd paint, man, I was a painter. I could paint, man. To this day, you know, So you know, things get a little tense, you know, i got the business life going, all that stuff. A friend of mine will say, man, I need my kitchen painted. I would say, when do you want me there?
2: <laughs> it's like
0: therapy, you know what I mean? It's about paint. Anyway, he taught me all the, you know I mean? I got a job, and then I got an apartment. I got a $325 a month apartment, and I was having trouble making my rent. And I had a car that I had to park on a hill, because it w- wouldn't start, and I had to roll down the hill and pop-start it. And I'd go, if the meeting I was at was on flat ground that night, I'd leave it running outside. I'd leave the car running. Nobody would steal it. it was, <laughs> I'd leave it running. I was the only guy in AA that knew I got two hours to the gallon on my car. <laughs> and, I would, and that was how it started for me. And I stayed and I did everything that I was supposed to do. And I kicked and screamed the whole way. And every time they told me to do something, I did it. And I got the six and a half years and I had a life. Things looked pretty good on the outside. Job returning into a career, doing some public relations work, got some clothes, got a better car, got a place to live, things are looking, you know, got, you know not worried about paying the rent anymore, things are good. Going nuts. Old timer said, work the steps or die, you fool. What do you think we've been telling you? Started reading the big book. Found out unity, recovery, and service was an ancient spiritual symbol. Mind, body, and spirit brought together as a whole human being. Therein lied the balance that I had never had in my life, drunk or sober. Alcoholics Anonymous adopted that symbol, and unity is the body, and I bring it here. I can't get sober, but we can. Recovery recoveries of the mind, the greater aspect of my disease. And, and the recovery of the mind, how do I recover from the mental aspect of my disease, the mental obsession? I work the 12 steps. That's how I don't start again. That's how I'm not starting again. Starting again is this. I get clean and sober and come in here. I mean, if, if that's all it was, is just put down the drink, and that's it. Put the plug in the jug, and that's it. And don't drink no matter what. If that was true, detox centers would be kicking out winners, man. 72 hours and free. Thanks for stopping by for the weekend, or Have a nice life. (laughs) That is not how it works for me. I have alcoholism. I have an obsession of the mind. Tells me I can drink like the normal man. Tells me to go out and have a couple of drinks. Persistence of this illusion, this belief in a lie, that I can do that, is astonishing. Many of us pursue it to the gates of insanity and death. The book tells me. That's what I will do without relieving myself of the obsession. How do I do that? I work the 12 steps. Step one is what's the problem? Lack of power. It's my dilemma. What's my solution? If lack of power is my problem, what's my solution? Step two, a power greater than me going to restore me to sanity, soundness of mind, relieve me of the obsession to drink. Well, knowing that, I'll drink. Well, then if it's a program of action, you better do something about it. What should I do? Make a decision to do something about it. Okay, do step three. I made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God. How I did that was I got on my knees, I did the third step prayer, and I got back up. Said right after that, you better start, you better get the program of, you better get the action plan working right away, or this will all be for naught. Fine, what's the action plan? Four through nine. I'm going to do this inventory of resentment, fear, and sex, four columns on each. Step four. I'm going to read it before God to another human being in five. I'm going to get a look on paper, a four, five, six, seven, eight, nine laying there in black and white right in front of me. All the stuff that I put between me and you and me and God. All the stuff. I'm going to swallow some large chunks of truth about myself in the doing of this. 6 and 7, I'm going to hook it back up with God. 8 and 9, I'm going to hook it back up with you. 10, 11, and 12, I'm going to keep me in the game. 10 me, I've got to keep my side of the street clean. If I'm wrong, promptly admit it. They know who they're talking to. Promptly. Promptly. Admit it. I'll hang on to it until June. I'll fester and I'll die a little bit every day between now and then. Cut it loose now. And if I'm busy keeping my side of the street clean, which is a big job, I don't have any time to be warned about your side of the street. Step 11 is my relationship with God. It's an action step. I seek God. How? Through prayer and meditation. What do I pray for? Knowledge of his will for me and the power to carry that out. That's it. I don't pray for her, the car, the money, the house, the career. I don't. Knowledge of his will for me and the power to carry that out. Thy will, not mine, be done. Why do I meditate? To quiet the mind so that when the answers come, I can hear them. Because it's very loud in here a lot of the time. <laughs> step 12, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. That was the whole point. To be restored to sanity. Have the obsession removed. That was the whole point. I can practice these principles and carry the message. Third side of the triangle. Service. Unity use the body to bring it here. The recoveries of the mind. I work the steps in the book. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of that, I'd be of service to other people. But I can't give away something I don't have. I've got to do the work. I've got to do the work. And I did all that stuff. And as a result of it, I have a completely different life. I have a completely different view and concept of living on this planet and being with you. <coughs> and it has nothing to do with me being bright or sophisticated or a good guy or anything. It has to do with that I don't want to drink. That's what I have to do with it. I do it because I want to stay sober. Alcoholics Anonymous, in my opinion, people sum up the A and they say, Alcoholics Anonymous is about love. Alcoholics Anonymous is about forgiveness or acceptance or all these things. I disagree. In my opinion, Alcoholics Anonymous is about staying sober. And if a hope-to-die dope-fiend alcoholic like me is going to do that, they tell me there are some suggestions that we would like to make. Yeah, the only requirement for membership is the desire to stop drinking. However, if you would like to stay here there's a few things we suggest you ought to try and do. <laughs> and if I actually go ahead and try and do those things, they tell me then, rarely have we seen a person fail to thoroughly followed our path. Thoroughly followed our path. So I do all those things, and you know what I have to bump into if I do that? There's no way around it. I'm going to bump into these things if I do that. I'm going to bump into all kinds of love and all kinds of acceptance and all kinds of forgiveness. And I'm going to adopt the code of love and tolerance in my own life. These are the kind of things that are going to happen to a guy like me who's never thought about you, never cared about you, wasn't really interested in even participating with you. It's going to change it completely. That's the significance of Alcoholics Anonymous to a guy like me. It goes so far past just not drinking and using, it's unbelievable. It really truly is a design for living. It really truly is. If you're new, congratulations. Stick around you're in for a real treat. And I'll tell you, in my opinion, what I think that treat is. When you were out there drinking and using, you remember that the first drink you took was just the best you ever had. That first time you got drunk and this the magic hit you for the first time. And how, if you drank for another 20 years, you chased that feeling. Well, it's the same thing with heroin, and it's the same thing with cocaine, and it's the same thing with anything you can name. And I've been addicted to all of them. I never detoxed, I just retoxed. I just... <laughs> can't get off the couch, I'm doing too much heroin, I'll start doing cocaine, then I can't get out of the closet, (laughs) you know, so we'll do, you know, barbiturates for a while, you know what I mean, I mean, I've been addicted to all that crap, the best buzz is in the beginning and you pay no price for it, in the end, the lines cross and in the end, you can't even get off, you can't get high and you're paying a terrible price, just trying to get well, terrible price, in here, it's the exact opposite. Getting that 30-day chip is the toughest thing you'll ever do. I have more respect for a 30-day chip than my 15-year cake by a mile. It's the most amazing thing in Alcoholics Anonymous to me because you're living in a state of grace. You haven't been here long enough to pick up the tools, really work the tools, find the value in the tools, but somehow you haven't had a drink in 30 days. It's a state of grace. That's, an am- that's all right. And, and it's hard to get. It doesn't seem that you don't feel a whole lot better at 30 days. A lot of us didn't. But you worked real hard to get it. Tell you what, at 15, I don't have to work as hard. From 14 to 15, I didn't have to work near as hard for that whole year as I did for that first 30 days. I didn't have to work near as hard. And the benefits were phenomenal. What that tells me is the lines have crossed again. Somewhere along this way, this path, the lines have crossed. Now, the price I pay to be here is less and less and less. And the buzz that I get off of being alive, sober, is getting bigger and better and, and every single day. So what that tells me is this. The biggest buzz I'm going to get is ahead of me. But stay here, I'm going to know a deeper level of love. I'm gonna, my, my, The dignity that I experience as a man is going to become more profound. My ability to love you is going to increase. My ability to accept love from you is going to increase. It's just going to get better and better and better. It's the flip side. I never thought it would be that way. I always get it exactly the opposite. I came in here thinking... If I love you, then you're going to love me. I was wrong. I thought if I was honest with you, then you were automatically going to be honest with me. That, that, that was my expectation that was put upon that. I was wrong. I'm honest with you and you lie to me. I love you and you don't love me. What the hell's wrong? My expectation. It's the way things work. Well, if I love you, what happens? The, the reward, the benefit of my loving you is that so I've become a loving man. That's a much greater reward. I didn't even think of that one. If I'm honest with you, the benefit of that for me is is that i become an honest man. And I get to live that in here as I walk around the planet, doing what I do. And what ends up happening is is that I'm having a ball being Earl. I'm more comfortable being Earl than I've ever been before. And you can come up to me in the line and say, I hate you when you talk about drugs. It makes me sick. And I'll say, God bless you. Have a nice day. I don't care what you think. I'm comfortable being me. I'm having a very good time. You can come up to me and say, hey, you know what? That was a nice talk. Thanks a lot. I said, thank you. That's nice. I'm okay either way. I'm having a nice time. You gave me that. I'm indebted to you. I can never repay the gift that I've been given in Alcoholics Anonymous. I can never repay Donald Madden, ever, for what he gave me, for what that man did for me. That I could love somebody enough to have it break my heart when they die. I didn't care, ever. You left, you left. You died, you died. I didn't care. It's all different for me. Because a member of Alcoholics Anonymous went the extra mile with me. If you're new, stick around here. Find the people in here that got the fire in their eyes. Got the passion for living. Love this thing. And aren't afraid to show it to you. Aren't afraid to show it to you. Odds are they're having a very good time living their lives out there. If you're new, please stay. Get yourself a big book and the people in here. And then you're armed to the teeth, man. You've got a program and you've got a fellowship and you're going to be okay. Thanks.
1: Thank you so much, Earl H. Once again, um, you have an incredible story, you have an incredible gift to articulate your story, and um, I am just thankful that you continue to share your experience, strength, and hope. And if you were listening and enjoyed that, and who wouldn't have enjoyed that, or gotten um spiritual help from that particular episode please pause your device and share that episode or the entire podcast with another friend or family member it may be just what they need today now on a little bit of uh, listener feedback mia writes in and mia says by the way i'm just thinking about this if mia is a mama would her kids call her mama mia i'm so i'm so sorry mia those things just come to my mind hopefully my mind <laughs> hopefully <coughs> By the way, I got a little bit of a, a little bit bronchitis here, but I'm going to, for you, the listener, I'm going to work through it. But if you hear me, cough, that's what's going on. Anyway, Mia writes in and she says, good morning, John. Well, good morning, Mia or Mama Mia. She says, I am a New Yorker living in Lexington, Mass. I am a member of OA, uh, for those of you who don't know what that is. That's Overeaters Anonymous, and I have been in and out of the rooms since 1996 i struggle with my food sobriety because of what my brain calls quote the nebulous nature of food unquote unquote versus the very concrete nature of alcohol that's very interesting thank you mia She says, my sponsor is in both AA and OA. She is always referencing things she heard in AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. She says, in fact, my Ebby, who brought me to OA in 1966, was in AA. He got me to see how my food addiction is exactly like his alcohol addiction. I am just looking for more voices to aid in my recovery. I found Soberspeak because my sponsor referenced a Patrick B. Yeah, we've had him on the uh, um, on the podcast before, pa- Patrick B. In one of our calls, I found Soberspeak on Podbean. Uh, looking for him. So far, that is the only podcast, the only episode that I've listened to where you were quote, interviewing Patrick. I like the format is different from others I have heard. Thank you for your service, John. in gratitude, Mia j-t. Well Mia j-t, thank you for letting me have a little fun with your name there and I'm glad you found us and I'm glad we can uh, uh, help support you in your uh, recovery journey. Lois writes in now just so everybody knows, this is not the actual Lois Wilson. This is another Lois. Lois is past, you know, so she wouldn't be writing in. Or if she was, it'd be kinda be a little bit weird, you know what I mean? Anyway, Lois says, Hi, John. First of all, I've really enjoyed Sober Speak. I think I found you when my sponsor asked me to listen to Joe and Charlie in the big book, and your podcast came up. I've so enjoyed all of your guests so far. So I feel a little guilty now that I'm sending a caveat, a but... A what about your way? And then she says, when Ricky R was talking about how important it was to go through the steps as quickly as possible, my heart sank. He is a very persuasive speaker. I'm on the slow boat, one plus year sober, and just starting step four. This seems to be working for me. I'm a cautious person, and if somebody had forced me to do the steps, Uh, force the steps on me, as soon as I walked in the door, I would have turned around. It took me months of listening to figure that out. And yes, I did need and sponsor. And then yes, I absolutely need the steps. Uh, And I also love your comment to take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man (laughs) on the beginning of the episode she says but this comment didn't work for me and I found this insistence on only one path to sobriety upsetting based on those in my home group we all took different ways to get there and can support each other no matter what the timeline we're on I hope you don't mind me sharing my thoughts well of course not Lois and she She says, I'm afraid that there may be other slow boaters like me out there who are panicking. Best regards. And thank you so much for sober speak. Lois B. See, it's not Lois W. It's Lois B. No, I'm glad you, ha- you have a, a voice there, uh, and that's what we want to be, you know, here, especially as Sober Speak is all-inclusive, and you're right, I don't think there is one path uh, to sobriety. There are many paths to sobriety, and our big book actually says that. It says, we only know a little, God will constantly reveal more to you and to him and to others, or whatever it says in there. I'm paraphrasing, but you get the idea. So, thanks for writing in, Lois, I really appreciate it. Scott writes in and Scott says, thank you, John, for including me in the Facebook group. Well, my pleasure, Mr. Scott. He says, I'm looking forward to being a part of the community. I live in Fort Wayne, Indiana. I'm 48 years old and I have been struggling with alcohol my whole life. I've gone through stretches of sobriety from 10 years to a day. I recently got 60 days and then I drank the next day. Honestly, I don't drink because of being depressed or sad or trying to run away from something. I just drink because I enjoy it. (laughs) I understand that. Excuse me. I understand that, Scott. He says, problem is that when I start, the allergy kicks in and I can't stop. (laughs) Well, you're one of us. Then stupid decisions happen and then trouble happens. So far. So as a result, starting tomorrow, I'm going to give AA another shot. No pun intended, laughed out loud. I started listening to your podcast probably about a year ago off and on. I really enjoy your content. I really don't have a favorite guest. They all bring something of value. However, I do really like your friend David G. He's on quite often and he brings a lot of value. Thank you again for including me in all your hard work and service to all of us alcoholics i really hope i can make my sobriety stick this time i can't go on living the way i'm living or i'm sure i'll be in an early grave take care scott m well thank you for writing in scott i appreciate you man and uh, i'm glad you're part of our facebook group and i'm glad you're getting back on the right path this is something from, oh, this is a, a post in the super secret Facebook group. It says, Eric posted in the group. He said, I just listened today to episode number 272, Extravagant Promises, where John M. speaks. Wow, he says in big capital letters. Your story, John, really made a great impact on me today. Just want to thank you for sharing your story. And um, uh, make this community stronger and stronger every day. If oh, it made me remember the first person I met that promised me that everything was going to be okay if I was willing to go to any extent uh, and do what they uh, uh, willing to go to any extent to to get what they had. Excuse me, sobriety, and it was to and that was to sit down and shut up and make coffee. And, my, and the God of my understanding will guide me through my fellow brothers and sisters. God bless you, John, and keep everything one day at a time. Well, thank you, Mr. Eric. I appreciate all your kind words there, my friend. And finally, Ray. Posted in the super secret Facebook group as well. He says, Hi, hi guys. First John M the friend who never knew me. I found sober speak in jail. Like many, they gave us tablets and instead of using mine to waste money on movies and music, I bought one album of 55 Alan Jackson songs and I downloaded every, every sober speak podcast that could help me grow. I listened to so many episodes, over 150 for sure, without keeping track that I couldn't find one. Uh, Without keeping track that I couldn't find one, I hadn't heard one after a while. My favorite episode is Rich B. I've been out since January and I've relapsed. I'm sorry today, but I need someone to work with me. Uh, as a sponsor, please. So this has been posted a little bit ago. A lot of people responded to to um, uh, Ray and uh, have been uh, uh more than willing to help him out inside that super secret Facebook group. All right, everybody. That is another. And thank you, Ray, for writing that in the in the group. And and thank you for your kind words once again, and I'm glad we we're able to provide you some spiritual guidance uh, while you were incarcerated, and I'm glad to see you were on the right track, my friend. Okay, that is it, uh, another episode of Sober Speak in the Tank, in the Can keep coming back. It works if you work it. Uh, May God bless you and keep you until then. Uh, I hope to be back next week. I do this one week at a time. God bless you, everybody. Love you guys. Bye-bye.